Hello and welcome to the Backtracker History Show with me, Alice. Join me as I go delving through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. From tales of pirates and privateers to murderers, tragic accidents to wartime escapades, this podcast has it all. And this episode is no exception, so get ready to give your ears a treat and maybe learn a few things on the way. a brief catch-up on King's Western House, which is situated high up on a hill overlooking the Severn Estuary and Avonmouth. Although only small by stately home standards, just 18 bedrooms, 12 of which would have been servant quarters, King's Western House has some unique features. It's been described as one of Sir John Vanborough's finest compact houses and was built for Sir Edward Southall, Secretary of State for Ireland under Queen Anne. Work began in about 1710 and the house was completed in 1719. In 1763 the house was altered by Robert Milne for Edward Southall III. The principal rooms were redecorated and improved and a two-storey kitchen wing was built at the rear. When the Southall family line died out, the house was sold to Philip John Miles. Miles was MP for Bristol from 1835 to 1837 and he'd also purchased Lee Court Estate, where he built the present mansion. His eldest son by his first marriage inherited Lee Court, whilst the eldest son by his second wife inherited King's Weston. It was during Philip William Skinner Miles' ownership that the house took on a new and very important role as one of the many auxiliary hospitals in World War I. there were over 3,000 Red Cross auxiliary hospitals which were administered under county directors. The War Office fixed and paid grants to hospitals for every patient they looked after and the grant amount increased annually during the war. Philip Napier Miles, the grandson of the original Miles owner, married Sybil Marguerite Gone in 1899. And after the outbreak of the First World War, the couple offered the use of King's Western House as a military hospital, and rather than hand it over to the authorities, they resolved to run it themselves. Sybil reorganised the house and took on management of the auxiliary hospital, opening it in 1915. She received the OBE after the war for her services. Until 1919, 
injured servicemen arrived at the house to recuperate from their injuries sustained on the front lines in Europe, and the music room was used as the main ward. Many other parts of the house were also converted to temporary wards, and the grounds were a relaxing environment for the recovering soldiers. Napier Miles raised money for the Red Cross by opening up the grounds and house to the public, and following the war, donated land and money for the erection of a war memorial in the park at the top of Park Hill. A further memorial was made to commemorate the use of the house as a hospital, and this is still in place over the front door. It reads... To the happy memory of the wounded from every land of the British Empire who were gathered in this house in the Great War, 1915 to 1919. Word of the Week And this week it gives me great pleasure to bring you the word... Camelopard Camelopard, or giraffe, dates back to the 14th century. While it has Greek and Latin roots and is totally archaic, it's easy enough to see its origin. It combines the words for camel and leopard. With many servicemen returning following the end of World War I and ever-increasing pressure on King's Weston from the expanding city, it was inevitable that parts would succumb to new housing. In an effort to ensure that new development was managed carefully and the houses offered were homes fit for heroes, Napier Miles sold 250 acres of the estate to the City of Bristol Corporation under the proviso that the two covenants restricted the use of the land including the following conditions. 1. That no part of the said lands shall be used for any purpose other than that of a garden suburb. 2. That the density shall amount on an average to not less than 8 and not more than 12 per acre. 3. That the said lands shall be laid out and built upon in accordance with the scheme which shall be previously prepared in consultation with the surveyor and architect employed by the vendor. After the war, the main house was used as a school prior to the completion of the Lawrence Western Estate and was then owned by the Bristol College of Science and Technology. The Big Bristol to London the Stroll. Big Bristol to London Stroll. The Big Bristol to London Stroll. Hello and welcome to the Big Bristol to London Stroll, where we take you along the scenic routes via canals on a gentle walk to our capital. Along the way, we'll discuss the places we see and anything we spot that takes our fancy. Sometimes, we're even joined along the way by family and friends. So come join us as we take the Big Stroll. Today sees us in Woolhampton, which lies on the A4 between Newbury and Reading and has developed over several centuries and has at least 25 buildings listed as architectural or historical interest. To the Saxons, Woolhampton was Wolfler Fingerton, 
but was recorded in the Doomsday Book, written in Latin by the Normans, as Olivintone. By the time of the Armada in 1588, the name had evolved to Woolhampton. Doing these walks as beautiful and enjoyable as they are, there's nothing more welcoming to see than a lovely village pub. And the Row Barge Inn didn't disappoint. It's one of the 18th century buildings in the village and was used in 1723 as a beer shop to serve the navvies who dug the Kennet and Avon Canal. And the modern swing bridge next to it is on the same site as one built at that time. Woolhampton may be small, but it does have its own railway station. The railway arrived here with the Reading to Hungerford extension in 1847, but the station was later obliged to change its name to Midgham to avoid confusion with Wolverhampton. Further down the canal is Oldermanston, which may have been inhabited as early as 1690, but is more well known in its connection with the UK's nuclear weapons programme. The Atomic Weapons Establishment, or AWE, which develops, maintains and disposes of the UK's nuclear weaponry is in the parish. Built on the site of the former RAF Aldermaston, the plant has been the destination of numerous Aldermaston marches. Today's walk was an exhilarating seven miles, and next week I'll be telling you about Theor, another beautiful destination that you probably haven't heard of. And as you're aware, we're doing this massive walk to raise money for Suicide Prevention Bristol in memory of Sarah, a listener and a friend. If you want to show some support and make a donation to this worthy cause, then head over to justgiving.com Type in Backtracker and you should find the page. It's sad to say that in these uncertain times of change, charities like this are in constant demand. So even the smallest donation could save a life. The First World War highlighted how poorly connected the city was to dock facilities at Avonmouth. The principal route for vehicles and foot traffic had been through Shirehampton and Kings Western Park, and it had proved extremely inconvenient. The city resolved to improve access by building a new road, the Portway, along the banks of the River Avon. This required large parts of Shirehampton Park to be compulsory purchased from Napier Mars, and a vast new cutting was gorged out of the landscape. Work began in 1919, and when it eventually opened in 1926, it was the most expensive road project ever undertaken. During the 1930s, the Bristol Corporation approached Dr Napier Miles again for use of some land to assist in the construction of sea defences. As this land had little use or value, he gave it to the corporation. This land was then drained and it was used to develop the Avonmouth docks. In 1937, 
the house was sold on the death of Dr Napier Miles to Bristol Municipal Charities for £9,800 and 104 acres of the Downs was sold to the Bristol Corporation for £11,764. After she sold the house, Miles's widow had a smaller house built in the grounds, the Dower House, which is now King's Western School. Bristol Municipal Charities intended to move Queen Elizabeth's Hospital School here, locally known as QEH, from its location at Barclay Place, and redevelopment began, which included the demolition of Milne's Kitchen Extension in 1938. Work was halted by the Second World War, after which QEH developed their site at Jacobs Wells Road instead. The estate was then requisitioned for the war effort and two huge military camps built within the parkland. Shirehampton East and West camps performed a key role in the war effort by providing transit accommodation, receiving troops arriving at Avonmouth from North America before they were moved onto the south coast and then onto the fronts in Europe. Nissan huts were erected in the woodland and at some time during the war, they were occupied by the Free Polish. Hundreds of barrack huts were erected across Shirehampton Golf Course and many more between the trees of the avenues. Many of the concrete bases of these huts can still be seen today. discovery by boffins at our local Bradley Stokes Science Labs. They've recently discovered that the colour that can open up your vehicle is khaki. Welcome back everyone, and now shall we conclude our story of King's Western House. Towards the end of the war, with many families bombed out and troops returning home, there was a desperate housing shortage. Some families grouped together and laid claim to many of the now empty army huts in order to turn them into homes. These squatters called their new settlement Stolen Paradise and set about bringing home comforts to the drafty huts. The city council even supported them by ensuring that a supply of fresh water was available and sanitation was taken care of. With the major post-war housing crisis in hand, the City Council chose to develop large parts of the King's Western Parkland for Lawrence Western Housing Estate. Beginning in 1947, clean, modern homes began springing up below King's Western House to rehome families bombed out of their old houses or being relocated from slums. In 1948, the Bristol Corporation requisitioned the buildings built by QEH for use as a primary school, whilst awaiting the construction of schools in the new estate of Lawrence Weston. The Dower House became an infant school, nicknamed the House in the Garden. The stable block was taken over by the Bristol Police Force in 1962 and converted into a police station. In 1970, Kings Weston was purchased by the Home Office and became a detective training centre for the police. 
but when the police left for their new premises at Portishead in 1995, the house was abandoned and its future became uncertain. But in 2000, King's Weston was acquired for a business and conference centre and after April 2011, the lease on King's Weston House was put on the market for £2 million. Following a short period of closure to the public, the house was sold to a new leaseholder, local businessman Norman Routledge, in December 2012. He then went on to extensively renovate the house and opened it again as a conference and wedding venue, as well as, what the Times newspaper described as, England's poshest commune. Mr Routledge had always owned and lived in house shares, but wanted something to suit him and his friends as they began to have less families and more children. In total, 19 people, including three children, lived in the Grade 1 listed building. They paid from £500 per month, with extra funds raised by renting the bottom floor out for wedding parties and film crews. The latest owner is John Barbie from San Francisco, who bought the house last year. I was lucky enough to meet him at the recent open days in Bristol, and here's what he had to say about when he first took over the house. Wiring dated from 1961, we've determined crumpled up newspapers, not even yellow, they were brown, and Princess Anne riding high, you know, you know I think it's pre-Olympics. <laughs> that, that sort of, and, and then many other things, receipts, you know, cash receipts, everything, unmistakably, this is when the wiring was in. And someone's worse than that, you know, bake light and behind the switch plates, although they were probably still using it in the 60s. I asked him what his plans were for the building for the future. I'll have to keep it, I'll have to keep it a business. I can't even afford to turn on the electricity and the gas unless we have, and, and unless it pays for itself. And pays for some of this renovation. And you were saying that Open Doors in Bristol is your favorite Oh, dinner. yes, because England has, if it, it's sort of like Italy. It's not quite as bad as Italy, but I mean, it's just too much history and it's too beautiful. It's too, I'm a kid in a candy shop. America has nothing but nature. I've had so much nature. It's just so, <laughs> you know, and, and look at how much nature you've got. And look at what England does. You have undergrounded your wires for at least a half a century. Americans are still putting up telephone poles as if we were in Victorian times. And we don't need them for telephones, do we? But that's, that's a, they did tandem. They did telephone and electricity, and they just never stopped doing them. And what's your background? I'm an old, old, the American side is very old. I'm, I'm the first male, often in 300 years, to come back to the old world. And my family thought I was un-American. What, what it, comes across is your love of history. But I, that was my favorite subject in school. And it's kind of fun. Amer American history's fun. It's enormous fun. I mean, it gives all this, you know, it, it puts everything in context. I, I think history is just everything. And it's like, you know, Winston Churchill was perfect, but he said something, and I think he was quoting someone else, if we forget our history, we'll have to repeat it. There are lessons to be learned. 
style is a choice, and there are many styles, and it would be just a lot more interesting for us to, and to appreciate what we've got left of the older styles, because they're beginning to vanish. I mean, we really will see one style only, and we'll be able to find everything we need in Ikea. Mm. Nothing against Ikea. They have one of the best department design shops in the world. But by God, this is not the only style invented. And, and I, I find the old styles very human. And look at this big house, and yet you feel comfortable in a strange way. Talking about the house, what's the weirdest, almost unusual thing you found in this building. Oh, the Excellent. roof is wonderful. They, they have their little footprints, and often it's a man and a woman. I think they went up there to be alone, you know. They <laughs> <laughs> And dates, and, and they kept them all. I mean, it was so sweet. I, you know, cared enough, they put them right back in the same place. And they had, oh, that was the first thing the owner before me had, to, and I, I would have done it myself half an inch thick of lead. Someone stole the first delivery of lead. They ripped lead off of old churches that have been there for 500 years. Why would they hesitate with the renovation project? Then he put guards and security and uh, got the lead on before someone could rip it off. And the roof is nearly inaccessible. You'd have to be Batman. So, and it had just started to fail. I know that from my own inspections. It was leaking in about 10 places very badly, but uh, they got it just in time. We started discussing the portrait gallery, the room you enter when you come into the building. So the perfect guide to the portrait gallery has been lost, and we have to just remake it. And then, and then I haven't done it. And of course, I couldn't do it. The archives have been shut until the last month. And it will be actually a lot of fun. I, I love having the lesser-known Thomas Cromwell <laughs> and Winford or Winthrop or whatever his name was. <laughs> the unknown Cromwell with his Earl robes. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's fun in a dark, it's, curious... I love history. It's uh, just great. You, yeah. you know, you're I the same as me. Lady Clifford, she had um, some archives. In, apparently she lives in quite an ordinary bungalow now. <laughs> and he went down and picked up... Because they're not died out. They're still there. Yeah. I want to meet these people so badly. You know, they're, they're a thousand years old, but, yeah. you know, I'm almost so their age. People you know, so <laughs> step back to the city archives, you know, so I think there's a massive amount to go through that's not been properly catalogued yet. Well, I read in David's bulletin just before COVID the letters of, what was her name, Catherine, on the opposite wall, and they're apparently a ton of fun, full of gossip and chat. There's such good libraries here. Your libraries are better than ours. Really? No. Well, you know, and ours are so full of rubbish. There's supposed to be three happy ghosts. The housekeeper glides through the staircase hall inside here, where, you know, where we are. We know it's her because of the bunch of keys. And it's a pretty place. You know, it's a... I never get tired of it here. How long have you had it? Now, well, I, I've had it since September, but we didn't move in till the end of February. And of course, I've been living next door for six years, so I'm in and out of the house discreetly, you know, but 
it's certainly, it, and it, it doesn't get old. There's something about the way the channel breaks up the clouds, the, the sun setting over that view just never gets old. Uh, well, there were some sad ghosts. There was a little boy who cleaned the chimneys, and he was 10 years old and getting, his father starved him. Hopefully you can tell that John Barbie truly loves and respects this old house. In fact, we had a lovely conversation and he carried on telling me lots of snippets of information that I didn't know. Apologies for the background noise, but it was during the open day and there were tours going on around us. But I think the information comes across anyway. The university now called Bath would have been here. This would have been a mass of grey, brutalist concrete. The whole thing. And there would have been next to no park for all the, the, the speculators went wild, you know, when they were allowed to. And I think it wasn't generosity. I think it was death duties. And I think it was income tax. I think yeah, when, the, when, the, when the last Squire Miles died, he was childless. Yeah, that too. Yes, so there was no man and, to leave it to. his third wife, the Florence Nightingale of Bristol, who just happened to look like Margaret Hamilton and the Wizard of Oz, you know, the, the Wicked Witch. But she, when, they, when they took the house over to be a military hospital, she went berserk. She'd never been so happy in her life. There are a few unique features in this house, including the staircase built in 1710, which is one of only two hanging staircases left in the world. The other is in St. Petersburg. Made of mahogany and oak, it seems to balance without support, rocking slightly like a rope bridge when used. It's yeah. a flying staircase. It's actually <laughs> supported by two strong iron pipes. It's amazing. That's how they have the proscenium arch. You know, there's an H-beam there, and it's stronger than the oak. <laughs> this is quite amazing. But look at this. They have these funny oak beams. It's obviously an old tree squared away, and it's doing some structural work. They're in all the floors and all the walls. And uh, one of them at the top split. You know, they weren't impervious to failure. And you can see even on the staircase at the top, they must have put two of the banisters in green. And this goes back to Vanbrugh, and they look like Walt Disney's candlestick. They're kind of bent in. They're, they're just tremendously cute. <laughs> Another unique feature remaining in the house is a pair of antlers set above the front door. They were from the Irish elk, a species extinct for more than 200,000 years. And in between tours, I was lucky enough to get a few words from the chair of the King's Western Action Group. I'm David Martin. I'm chair of the King's Western Action Group. Um, we're a volunteer group that look after or, or celebrate, conserve and enhance the, the King's Western uh, estate um, based around King's Western House. So uh, there's 300 acres of public parkland around King's Western. We hold regular volunteer uh, working parties, um, cutting back undergrowth, opening up views, putting in benches and steps. and been running for 10 years now. Uh, this is our 10th anniversary and we've 
hopefully put King's Weston back on the map. Um, it was seemed to be a very forgotten place when we started 10 years ago. I was interested in King's Weston. I could never understand why it just looked like a, a house dumped in the corner of a playing field. I had a friend, um, Tim Denning, and we realized we both had a great interest in King's Weston. And we just started researching about it and finding out some incredible things that nobody else had known about. And we also recognized that the estate was in a very poor condition. Uh, it was in declining condition. At that time, the house was um, on the market and the park had been neglected for, well, pretty much since the Second World War. So we, we just decided that well, we would see whether or not other people were interested in, in helping. And we, we set up the group, and fortunately, we got buy-in by the council, uh, and a lot of volunteers came out and, and started joining us. Whilst talking about the house, David went on to say that there were many, many more secrets that the house has to offer up. But the wife of the caretaker of the house in the 1970s said that she remembers her husband working with some of the police cadets who were then in training at, at, when it was, this was a police training college. She remembers her husband working with the cadets. They got the remains of the statue put into a wheelbarrow um, and it was taken from downstairs where the coffee shop is today, wheeled out uh, and is supposed to have been dumped over the edge of the, the terrace into a, an ash pile from the, the boilers of the house. Uh, whether or not she's still there, we, we don't know, but potentially, yeah, she's there waiting to be discovered. And David's last tale about the house was an amazing discovery he made in the basement. When um, Norman Routledge took the house on in about um, 2012, um, he told us that there was a this, this sort of case of marble bits in the basement. Um, we thought all the fireplaces had dis disappeared from the house completely and were long gone or sold. And he invited us downstairs to have a look and we were able to sort of piece together all of the bits of marble and realise that actually this great chest of stuff, there was actually a single complete fireplace. Um, and we were able to identify which room it had been in from some historic photographs. Fortunately, it was uh, restored and, and reinstated in the original location. I have guessed why it was saved. It was so badly broken. All of them were broken. The Judgment of Venus is cracked in half, the one that's in the back of the Hippodrome Theater. And we really don't want to move it now because it was so badly damaged the first time they did it. Back in the day facts. Let's start off with the 25th of September, 1976, when Bono, David Evans, his brother Dick and Adam Clayton respond to an advertisement on a balloon board at Mount Temple posted by fellow student Larry Mullen Jr. to form a rock band, which went on to become U2. On the 26th of September, 1580, Francis Drake completes circumnavigation of the world, sailing into Plymouth aboard the Golden Hind. On September the 29th, 1913, Rudolf Diesel, inventor of the engine that bears his name, disappears from the steamship Dresden while travelling from Antwerp, Belgium, to Harwich, England. On October the 10th, 
a Belgian sailor aboard a North Sea steamer spotted a body floating in the water. Upon further investigation, it turned out that the body was Diesel's. And finally, at 5.45pm on September 30th, 1955, 24-year-old actor James Dean is killed in California when the Porsche she is driving hits a Ford Tudor sedan at an intersection. The driver of the other car, 23-year-old student Donald Turnipseed, was dazed, but mostly uninjured. Dean's passenger, German Porsche mechanic Rolf Wutherich, was badly injured, but survived. Today's story was helped along with the voice talents of John Locke from Bradley Stoke Radio and Sam Roberts from St Stephen's Drama Group here in Bristol. A massive thank you has to go out to the people at King's Western House, which includes John Barbie, the owner, David Martin, the chair of the King's Western Action Group, and all the other volunteers who help keep this place alive. And if you'd like some more information about the King's Western Action Group, then head over to their website at www.kwag.org.uk. Thank you for listening to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. This has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And if you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. And if you'd like to support the show with a donation, however small, you can go to ko-fi.com, spelt K-O hyphen F-I. And if you're interested in buying merchandise featuring the show's logo, then pop over to tpublic.com, where you'll find lots of things to choose from. And if you want to get in touch with me, it's perfectly easy. You'll be able to find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking for at Backtracker UK, with a capital B, a capital T, and a capital UK. Or you can email me direct at info at backtracker.co.uk. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other.